Great to see you all. It's great to be full. That brings its own challenges, but it's great to be back, isn't it? And to be worshipping God together and to be God's people gathered uh, to, to come together to encourage one another and to worship him. On your chair, there should be an outline. Uh, all the, the um, uh, information that in the message this morning is in there. So if you find that useful, it's there. The verses are on there and all the points and everything will be up on the screen as well. The responses that people make to Jesus are fascinating. Mahatma Gandhi, who to my knowledge never became a a follower of Jesus, uh, said this about Jesus. A man who was completely innocent offered himself as a sacrifice for the good of others, including his enemies, and became the ransom of the world. It was a perfect act. Adolf Hitler, who I think we can fairly safely assume never became a Christian, Uh, said this about Jesus. In boundless love as a Christian and as a man, I read through the passage which tells us how the Lord at last rose in his might and seized the scourge to drive out of the temple the brood of vipers and adders. How terrific was his fight for the world. An interesting take on Jesus. The French dictator Napoleon Bonaparte, who conquered much of Europe by force, uh, said this about Jesus. I know men and I tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man. Between him and every other person in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and myself founded empires. But what foundation did we rest the creations of our genius upon force? Jesus Christ founded an empire upon love. And at this hour, millions of men would die for him. Albert Einstein, the famous scientist, said this about Jesus. I am a Jew, but I'm enthralled by the luminous figure of the Nazarene. Jesus is too colossal for the pen of phrasemongers, however artful. He further added, No man can read the Gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus. His personality pulsates in every word. No myth is filled with such life. Theseus and other heroes of his type lack the authentic vitality of Jesus. Mikhail Gorbachev, the last leader of the Soviet Union, said this about Jesus. Jesus was the first socialist, the first to seek a better life for mankind. And Madonna, showing my age a little bit, but Madonna, when interviewed in Rolling Stone magazine, said this, I like crosses. I'm sentimental about Jesus on the cross. Jesus was a Jew, and I also believe he was a catalyst, and I think he offended people because his message was to love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, no one is better than somebody else. He embraced all people, whether it was a beggar on the street or a prostitute, and he admonished a group of Jews who were not observing the prophets of the Torah, so he rattled a lot of people's cages. Some interesting and kind of varied and fascinating responses to the person of Jesus and to what Jesus taught and what he stood for. People respond, don't they, in all sorts of different ways to Jesus, to who he was, to who he is. But I find it fascinating but also hugely sad that people such as the ones that we've looked at this morning Uh, admire Jesus, they admire the person, they admire much of what he said, but they don't seem to ever quite get round to putting their own trust in Jesus. And to my knowledge, none of the people that we've mentioned this morning ever did that. And we see this thing, we see this kind of thing happening in the Gospels time and time again, the four accounts of Jesus' life in the Bible, people spending loads of time with Jesus, hanging out with Jesus, learning from him, finding all sorts of things about him, but always kind of just missing the point, never seeming to quite grasp the point. And I guess the ultimate example of that was Judas, wasn't it? Who lived with Jesus three or so years, heard everything, and at the end turned his back on Jesus. 
We're looking today at John chapter 7. We're continuing in our studies in John's Gospel. We're looking at verses 14 to 24. Stuart started the, survey, uh, uh, the series off for us last Sunday with the first bit of the chapter. And it, this, in this passage this morning is a great example of this kind of thing. People spending time with Jesus, checking Jesus out, hearing what he says, but never quite grasping the truth. People who interact with Jesus and yet miss the point. Last week we saw how Jesus physical brothers, his half-brothers, wanted him to go up to the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem, and they wanted to see him perform all kind of miracles and do a big show and all the rest of it. But Jesus was working to a different timescale. Jesus was working to God's timescale, to God's plan. And when his younger brothers wanted him to go, Jesus stayed behind. And so halfway through this festival, this eight-day feast in Jerusalem, Jesus then, working to God's timetable, goes up to Jerusalem. And then he begins to teach halfway through this uh, great festival. So we're going to read John's account of what happens. I'm going to read from John chapter 7. We're going to read from 14 to 24. So if you've got a Bible with you, you can turn, uh, or you can just listen as I read the verses. Uh, So it's John chapter 7 and 14 to 24. Not until halfway through the feast did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. The Jews were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having studied? Jesus answered, my teaching is not my own. It comes from him who sent me. If anyone chooses to do God's will, he will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. He who speaks on his own does so to gain honor for himself, but he who works for the honor of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. Has not Moses given you the law, yet not one of you keeps the law? Why are you trying to kill me? You're demon-possessed, the crowd answered. Who is trying to kill you? Jesus said to them, I did one miracle, and you were all astonished. Yet because Moses gave you circumcision, though actually it did not come from Moses but from the patriarchs, you circumcise a child on the Sabbath. Now if a child can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing the whole man? on the Sabbath. Stop judging by mere appearances and make a right judgment. Verse 14 says, not until halfway through the feast did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. And this is a picture here of uh, where Jesus would have been teaching. It's, It's a model of the temple that Herod built. And you can see uh, the temple court. So this is where Jesus would have been teaching. Halfway through the feast, there have been loads of Jews from all over the place visiting and gathering in Jerusalem. And there is Jesus somewhere in that area uh, teaching. We don't know exactly what Jesus was teaching on. It would have been the Old Testament, probably the Feast of Tabernacles or the events that Stuart was talking about last week. But there he was teaching and preaching Uh, about God, about the Old Testament, about the things that were there. And as the crowds began to listen to Jesus teach, we read these words. The Jews were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having studied? Jesus' teaching clearly makes a huge impression on the crowds that are gathered there and are listening to him. Just like the famous people that we read the quotes from earlier. Jesus' teaching impresses them. There's there's something attractive, there's something impressive about what they hear. And when we read the four Gospels, all we're getting really is the edited highlights, the key points that Jesus said. Jesus would have probably said much more. We just get the, the kind of edited highlights. And it must have been amazing to be there and actually hear everything that Jesus said and taught and did, to actually watch and listen to Jesus in the flesh. And the content of Jesus' teaching was such that the crowds listening couldn't understand how he had got so much knowledge and how he taught with such authority. He was so impressive as a teacher. 
Now, Jesus was obviously well enough known by the people that they knew that he hadn't studied formally in Jerusalem. He hadn't been to Jerusalem and studied under one of the, the Jewish rabbis, which was the kind of way that things happened in those days. It was the custom at the time for young Jewish men, if they wanted to be teachers on the Old Testament, to go up, spend some time in Jerusalem under one of the top rabbis, kind of a theological school, I guess, and to become uh, teachers in the Old Testament. The Apostle Paul did just that. When Paul was recounting his life story in Acts 22, and it, when he was establishing his credentials as he writes, or, or as Luke writes about it. And this is what he says. I studied under Gamaliel, that was one of the top uh, rabbis, and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. But everyone knew that Jesus hadn't done that. Jesus hadn't been to Jerusalem and studied under a rabbi. He was just a carpenter from Nazareth. So it was a real mystery to everybody how Jesus could teach the way that he did. And he could behave and, and, and kind of carry himself with such authority. And Jesus replies by saying, my teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who has sent me. The crowds were right. Jesus hadn't been taught by one of the top rabbis in Jerusalem. But neither had he invented it himself. This wasn't Jesus making his own stuff up. This wasn't him kind of inventing something new for himself. Everything that Jesus said, everything that Jesus did, came directly from God, God the Father. Jesus says the same thing right back in uh, John chapter 5, 19, speaking about himself. He says, very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing, because whatever the father does, the son also does. Jesus was the son of God. He was God come as a human being, God in the flesh. He was Emmanuel, God with us. And so when we look at Jesus, when we see Jesus, we're seeing God here as a human being. If we want to know what God is like, we look at Jesus and we see God's heart revealed. And the fact that God is one and yet is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is a concept that kind of messes with my head. It's a little bit much for my six GCSEs to get their head around. And some of you might struggle too to get our heads around the concept of the Trinity. Jesus, God the Son, was and is distinct and unique member of the Trinity. And yet at the same time, he always was and continues to be one with God the Father. They are eternally one and yet distinct persons. So nothing that Jesus ever said, nothing that Jesus ever did was contrary to what God said or did. Jesus' teachings came from the one who sent him. When we are reading the words of Jesus, we're reading the words of God. He is the word made flesh. He is the living uh, God amongst us. Jesus' teachings came from the one who sent him, God the Father. And it's really important that we grasp this concept. I think lots of people, and lots of Christians too, have a kind of faulty understanding about Jesus and about what he taught. We, we sometimes maybe fall into the trap of thinking that what Jesus taught was somehow different to what the Old Testament taught. Or that God somehow changed when Jesus came along. And that the God of the New Testament is maybe nicer or different than the God of the Old Testament. We really like the Jesus who treats the tax collectors and the uh, prostitutes and the adulterers with grace. We, we like that Jesus, but we're not quite so keen, maybe, sometimes, on the God that we think we read about in the Old Testament. The one who, for instance, commands that people should be put to death for breaking parts of the law of Moses. And so subconsciously, we can, if we're not careful, end up separating the person that we might call God the Father the, or the God of the Old Testament 
from Jesus, as if somehow they're two different things, and, and, and they're not. And we can, if we're not careful, think that somehow Jesus is nicer, or is somehow better, or some kind of improvement on the God of the Old Testament. Apart from the fact that that's actually incorrect, what it can lead to is a faulty understanding and a faulty approach to both the Old Testament and to the New Testament and to God himself. And one of the, one of the results is that it's quite common, I guess, for lots of Christians just never to get around to reading the Old Testament, or we struggle with the Old Testament, and we don't read it as much as we do the New Testament. And I kind of get why that's the case, but we need to understand that the Old Testament is every bit as much from God as the New Testament is. It's really common for people to think perhaps the Old Testament was or is faulty in that Jesus changed or improved what the Old Testament said, kind of Mark 1 and then Mark 2. But as we look at the words of Jesus here and throughout the four Gospels, what we see is that Jesus is God made flesh. Jesus is God. He's God come as a human being. So the God that Moses met in the burning bush that we read about a few weeks ago as we were looking in Exodus when, uh, and, and then when God spoke to Moses and so on, the God that Moses met in the burning bush was Jesus. The God that gave Moses the law and the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai was Jesus. It was God the Son. He, didn't, he hadn't become a human being at that point. He hadn't taken on human flesh, but it was still God the Son, the one who would later come into the world, take upon himself a human body, and take the name Jesus. Because whenever God speaks or communicates, he does this through God the Son, whether that's in the Old Testament or in the New Testament. That's why Jesus is called the Word. He's the Word made flesh. So we need to be really careful that we don't try and separate Jesus, God the Son, the Word made flesh, from the rest of the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, the written Word of God. The words of Jesus recorded in the Gospels are no more authoritative or, or, or inspired than the rest of the Bible. Some of you might have Bibles in the New Testament with the words of Jesus in red. There's nothing wrong with that. It just kind of highlights that these are the words of Jesus. But those words are no more important or no more inspired anyway than the rest of the Bible, because every single word is from God. The words that we read in the Old Testament books of Exodus and Leviticus, for instance, are as much the words of Jesus as those found in the Gospels, because Jesus is God and it was him speaking to Moses, inspiring the whole of the Bible. One example of this is around human sexuality. I've heard some people say that Jesus is silent on the subject of sexuality and things like same-sex relationships and homosexual relations and, and actions. And it's true that Jesus doesn't actually say anything on this particular topic. He does about marriage and about God's design for marriage. He refers right back to Genesis. Uh, God made the male and female in the beginning. But Jesus doesn't say anything about homosexuality, for instance, in the four gospel accounts. But that's because he doesn't need to, because he's already said everything he needs to say in the Old Testament law. And the Old Testament law is pretty, is pretty black and white on the matter. So Jesus has already spoken on that subject. He doesn't need to add anything to it when he's here on earth. So Jesus is God. God hasn't changed from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Jesus, God the Son, is the one that we could say wrote the Old Testament and gave the Old Testament law to Moses. It's the same person. It's true that how we apply some of the Old Testament, especially the law of Moses, uh, might be different from how the nation of Israel applied it. That's because they are Israel and we're not the nation of Israel. We looked at that a few weeks ago, how the, the way that we apply the law is, is different uh, for a number of reasons. 
And of course, lots of the Old Testament is a historical record. It's narrative. It's a historical record of what happened. So just because it records something bad happening doesn't mean that God approves of it. It's just God recording for us what happened. So the reason that Jesus gave such amazing teaching and the reason that the crowds were so amazed by what Jesus was saying was because he wrote the Old Testament. As Jesus was teaching on the Old Testament in these temple courts, the reason that they'd never heard anyone speak about it in this way was because this was the author. This was the person who wrote it. This was the person who had originally spoken these words. That's why the Jews had never heard anybody teach quite like Jesus. That's why Jesus could say in John 14, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. It'd be a bit like studying Shakespeare all your life and, and, and listening to lots of English teachers, uh, views on Shakespeare and his writings and all the rest of it, and then finally getting to meet Shakespeare himself. You've heard what all the people say about him, now here is the real thing. The Jews were used to people setting themselves up as rabbis and, and, and teaching on the Old Testament. But as with everybody who teaches, myself included, everybody who teaches from the Bible, their motives were and are always mixed. We never have pure motives. But, but Jesus was different. In verse 18, he says this, He who speaks on his own does so to gain honor for himself. But he who works for the honor of the one who sent him is a man of truth. He's talking about himself. There is nothing false about him. Jesus was working not for his own honor, but for the honor of God the Father, the one who sent him. And, and Jesus was a man of truth. In fact, he was the truth. There was nothing false in Jesus. Everything he said was right, was true, and came from God the Father. And most of the Jews that listened to Jesus never reached the point of believing in him and putting their faith and their trust in him, despite being amazed at his teachings, despite the fact that they were amazed. They never seem to quite get it. They never seem to get or arrive at that point of committing themselves to Jesus. We, we saw earlier how some famous and some infamous people were and are fans of Jesus, and yet, as far as I'm aware, they've never actually really grasped what it means to put their trust in Jesus, who he really is. And it's possible to listen to the words of Jesus all your life. It's, it's possible to be really familiar with the words of Jesus it's possible to know lots about him and what he said, but never really accept who he is and never really put your faith and trust in him. Jesus says this in verse 17, If anyone chooses to do God's will, he will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. And the way to really find out who Jesus is and where his teaching comes from is to choose to do God's will. But what is God's will? What does that mean? What does Jesus mean when he says that? Well, way back in John chapter 6, Jesus says this, This is the only work God wants from you. Believe in the one he has sent. So God's will, the only work, the only action that God wants from us, is to believe in the one he has sent. That's what God's will is for you, for me, is to believe in the one he sent. So Jesus is saying here that there's a sense in which we will never really grasp who Jesus is and understand who he is and what he's taught and what he's done until we actually take that step of faith and choose to put our faith and trust in him. We can know about him from a distance, but until we choose to take that step of faith, we will never truly grasp. And even then, uh, our minds are limited. But when we take that step of faith, then we embrace and we understand who Jesus is and what he's done for us. It's a bit like knowing that there's an amazing cake in the kitchen, but the door is shut. 
But and, and, and the people outside are telling you how amazing that cake is and how wonderful it was and they've enjoyed it. But until you open that door and go into the kitchen and eat the cake yourself, you will never understand. You will never really know how good that cake is. And it may be this morning that you're someone who's been coming along to church week after week. Maybe you've been watching at home week after week. Maybe for years, in fact. And you've heard lots about Jesus. But you've yet to make that choice to actually do God's will. And God's will is to believe in the one that he has sent. And if you really want to know Jesus and really know God, then you need to take that step of faith and choose to do God's will, which is to believe in the one that he has sent, which is Jesus. Jesus later on in John 14 says, no one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. And if up until now you've been on the outside, as it were, kind of looking in at Jesus from a distance, then can I challenge you this morning to take that step and to choose to believe in Jesus and give your life to him and ask him to be your Lord and Savior, to to move from knowing about Jesus to actually uh, knowing him personally as your Lord and Savior, To to, to move from knowing about God to actually trusting in God to knowing God as that good, good father that Daniel and Shona sang about for us earlier, and having that wonderful personal, personal relationship with God through Jesus, to know him as that good, good father. Having made clear where his teaching came from, Jesus then challenged those that were listening about their reaction to him and to what he'd been doing and what he'd been saying. Has not Moses given you the law, he says, yet not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? Jesus knew that the Jewish authorities were plotting to kill him. And it seems that it was common knowledge as you read through John. And of course, killing Jesus would be murder so that they would be breaking, of course, the very, uh, the sixth commandment, the very law that they were so proud of trying to keep. Despite being proud of the law that God had given to Moses, they seemed to be quite happy to break that law to get rid of Jesus. But the crowd listening to Jesus tried to fend off Jesus' accusations by basically saying that Jesus was mad. You are demon-possessed, the crowd answered. Who is trying to kill you? Sometime earlier on in John 6, Jesus had healed a man on the Sabbath. And the Jewish authorities were outraged by what Jesus had done. Not the fact that 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 he healed a man, but they were outraged by the fact that he'd done it on the Sabbath. And so they wanted him dead. Seems a bit of a A strong reaction, doesn't it? But they hated Jesus so much they wanted to kill him and they were plotting to do so. So Jesus says to them, I did one miracle and you are all astonished. They weren't astonished at the miracle. It was the fact that Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. That's what they were astonished at. That Jesus had the effrontery to break the Sabbath and heal someone. And the Jewish leaders and probably lots of the regular people as well had missed the point. They did what lots of us, I guess, are prone to do, which is focus on a rule rather than what the rule is trying to achieve. We focus on a rule rather than what the rule is trying to achieve. The Sabbath, the weekly day of rest, we looked at this a few weeks ago, didn't we? But the the Sabbath, the weekly day of rest that God had commanded the people of Israel to keep was partly created to serve people. People weren't created to serve the Sabbath. It was a rule to be a help, not a hindrance. But when Jesus had healed the man on the Sabbath in John 6, they were more bothered that the crowd, the people, the, the authorities were more bothered about the rules of not working on the Sabbath than they were about the person who clearly needed healing. And they'd missed the point. 
So Jesus says to them, yeah, because Moses gave you circumcision, though actually it didn't come from Moses, but from the patriarchs. He's talking there about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You circumcised a child on the Sabbath. Under the Old Testament law that God gave to Moses, that Jesus gave to Moses, every Jewish boy had to be circumcised on the eighth day. Leviticus 12, verse 3 says, on the eighth day, the boy is to be circumcised. And if you're wondering why God commanded that boys had to be circumcised on the eighth day, then you won't find the reason anywhere in the Bible. But we do find the reason in science, because the eighth day of a boy's life is the point at which vitamin K is at its highest throughout a male's life. And vitamin K causes the blood to clot. Isn't that amazing? That God would choose the very day at which blood clots at its greatest, when there were no medical treatments. It's almost as if God knew what he was doing when he told them to do it on the eighth day. Crazy, isn't it? But if the eighth day after the boy, the boy was born was a Sabbath, then because the Jews of Jesus' time wanted to still obey the law to circumcise a boy, they would then still go ahead and carry it out, even though that meant breaking the law of the Sabbath. And so even though circumcision was considered to be an act of work for whoever had to carry it out, they were happy to break the law in order to uh, keep the law about circumcision. Because the, bo- the law that commanded boys to be circumcised was deemed to be more important than the law not to work on the Sabbath. So Jesus says, now if a child can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing the whole man on the Sabbath? They were happy to break the, the Sabbath law to keep the circumcision law, which only affected one part of a boy's body. Then why were they angry with Jesus for healing the whole of a man's body? They were totally missing the real point. We haven't got time to go into circumcision, but they were totally missing the point of what that was all about. And they were being hypocritical. So Jesus says, stop judging by mere appearances and make a right judgment. Stop judging by mere appearances. They were more concerned with rules and regulations than with what the rules and regulations were trying to achieve. And we see this over and over again with people's interactions with Jesus. Instead of focusing on and, and, and seeing the real issue, people would focus on the external stuff. In, instead of focusing on their need for God to change their hearts, they thought that as long as they were ticking all the boxes externally and keeping all the rules publicly, then they were okay. And we've seen that over the last few weeks, haven't we, as we've worked our way through the Ten Commandments. We might be keeping them externally or, or physically, but in our hearts we can still be breaking them. And what every person needs is for Jesus to come and give us a new heart. We need to be born again. We need Jesus to change us from the inside, not just from the outside. Many people are instinctively drawn to keeping rules rather than to addressing or focusing on the real issue. Some people just love rules and regulations. It's just part of their personality. Nothing wrong with that. We need people like that. They're they're good in government. We, we, We need rules and regulations. Countries function like that. And the Jews of Jesus' time certainly loved rules and regulations. UK law states that here at Regent, because we're a place of work, we have employees working in the building, we have to display a health and safety at work poster. It's in the kitchen, it's in there. So we've got one up in the kitchen. Now apparently that will make everybody safe. The law says we have to do that, and if we don't have that up in the kitchen, we're breaking the law. So by putting that up, Ryan, Claire, myself, Linda, we're we're safe, which is good. Are you comforted, Linda, by that? Good, excellent, that's good. But putting that poster up in the kitchen won't make any of us any safer. It's the appearance of safety 
rather than the reality of safety. It's focusing on rules rather than on the real issue. What will really make Regent a safer place for everybody and for the employees is not leaving sharp knives out or trip hazards or uh, shutting people in or all that kind of stuff. And most of us here today and watching at home online would profess to be those who have recognized our real need, our real need of a new heart and have trusted in Jesus. But even as Christian believers, we can still be judging by appearances and fail to make a right judgment like these people were who Jesus was talking to. It's called legalism. Focusing on rules rather than focusing on the real issue that the rules are trying to address. We can dress up our behavior as being good whilst ignoring or missing the real issue. A kind of classic example of that is, you know, would be to insist that everybody has to come to church in a suit. That would be kind of missing the point. What is really important, we, we might choose to dress up, that's fine, but what is really important is our heart. But there are some examples. I was thinking this week, how, do we, how can we find ourselves sometimes falling into this trap of being legalists or, or kind of missing the point and focusing on something other than Jesus when we think we're focusing on Jesus? Well, here's some examples. Taking bread and wine together to remember Jesus is incredibly important. We normally do that every week here at Region. It's a central aspect of the Christian faith and it should have a, heart, it should have a place right at the heart of, an, of the life of the local church. But if we're not careful... We can find ourselves more devoted to communion than we are to Jesus. We can find ourselves more devoted to taking bread and wine than we are to Jesus. The bread and wine are symbols of Jesus, but if we're not careful, we can find ourselves more concerned with ticking the box of, and say we've taken the symbols than being devoted to the person that the bread and wine symbolize. And the symbol can end up being more important than what it's symbolic of. The second coming of Jesus is another central part of the Christian faith, and it's something that we should be teaching on and we should be focusing on in our church life and in our personal life. But if we're not careful, it's another way in which we can be more interested in the study of the second coming than and, and, and looking at all the fascinating details of our books like Revelation and Daniel and Ezekiel. We can be more interested in the study of the second coming than we are with actually being ready to meet Jesus when he comes. It's possible to know all the intricate details of Jesus' second coming and yet not be in love with Jesus. It's possible to know all the details of the second coming and, and yet not be living any differently to the people around us. If studying Jesus' second coming doesn't change us and transform us and make us love Jesus more, then we're kind of missing the point. We're focusing on an external thing rather than seeing the reality which is Jesus. Jesus makes this very point in John 5. He says, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. We can even be obsessed with studying the Bible for the sake of gaining knowledge and yet miss the fact that we're meant to meet with Jesus when we study the Bible. It's more than possible to study our Bibles for a whole hour every day and yet fail to meet with Jesus as we do so. And so we close our Bibles no different to how we open them because we've focused on an external thing. We've kind of missed the point that we've not got to know Jesus any better. The whole of the Bible is ultimately all about Jesus. Even those difficult, hard-to-understand passages in the Old Testament that we struggle with a little bit. Right from Genesis to Revelation. I wonder, do you know him? Do you really know Jesus? Jesus. 
Do you really know Jesus this morning? Do you know him? And do you love him? Not just knowing about him, but are you in love with Jesus? Have you put your faith and your trust in Jesus? Are you still just looking in from the outside? Or, or will you today make that step and, and say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step in and, and trust in Jesus and surrender my life to him? And if you have, and perhaps that's most of us this morning, are you getting to know him better? Not more about him, but that's good, it's important. But are we getting to know him better and better each day? Are you loving him more and more each day? We're going to watch a video uh, to to, uh, bring this to an end. Thanks, guys. The Bible says my king is the king of the Jews. He's a king of Israel. He's a king of righteousness. He's a king of the ages. He's a king of heaven. He's a king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder do you know him? My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleans the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captive. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he purifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's a key to knowledge. He's a wellspring of wisdom. He's a doorway of deliverance. He's a pathway of peace. He's a roadway of righteousness. He's a highway of holiness. He's a gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. And his yoke is easy. And his burden is lighter. Mind. You can't, you can't get him off of your head. You can't outlive him. 